five pages. If you were to type out this letter of Paul to the Philippians, it'd be about five pages long. And after today's sermon, we'll have spent about 25 hours together studying this letter. I've prepared 25 sermons and together we have read and thought deeply about this book. We could have spent twice that much time. There's so much in this book. We could have spent twice that much time because it it always takes a lot of work to not only understand God's word, but then to apply his word, to spread his word over every inch of our lives. So it's been good for us to do this together in this church. We believe that this is God's book. It is God's word and it is essential for life. Moses wrote, said in Deuteronomy 8, 3, man does not live on bread alone, but man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. By God's grace, for 25 weeks, we've been able to live on Paul's words from the mouth of the Lord. These words of Paul in this great letter to a great church. By now, we've all been schooled by Paul. We've all been shepherded by Paul. He has knocked us down More than once, we've been flattened in our pride, but he's also been the one to give us hopeful places to fall. We've been humbled, we've been helped, we've been challenged, we've been encouraged. This morning, sadly, we come to the end, these last five verses. And with these final words, Paul will finish his letter He will hand it off to Epaphroditus who will put it in an envelope or roll it up. I'm not sure which. And then he'll place it in a pack and he'll begin his three week or so journey back to Philippi. There are four parts to this conclusion and Lord willing, we'll get to each of them today. They are number one, an encouragement Number two, a purpose, really the purpose. Number three, a greeting. And number four, a benediction. But before I preach this final sermon in Philippians, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in help, we need you to help us again. We need you to help us understand your word. We need you to help us apply your word. We know that our minds will be dark and our hearts will be cold without you. So being the consuming fire that you are by your Holy Spirit, give us what fire gives us. Give us light and give us heat. Enlighten us and encourage us. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. If you're using one of the church Bibles, which you're free to take with you if you don't have a Bible of your own, 
You'll find today's text on page 637. Let me read this passage in its entirety one more time before we begin. Philippians 4, 19 through 23. This is the word of God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. There are four parts to these final five verses. Again, one, an encouragement. Two, a purpose. Three, a greeting. And four, a benediction. We'll spend the most time on one and two and wrap up as Paul does with three and four. So first, in verse 19, there is an encouragement. Let's read it together. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is an encouragement. An encouragement does more than make someone feel better. An encouragement gives someone courage. Real encouragement offers Objective truth that gives a person the confidence to do something, to start something, to finish something. And verse 19 is an encouragement that encourages us to do the imperatives of this letter that Paul wrote. This encouragement, look with me, begins with the word and which means that this is not a standalone sentence the sentence does not stand by itself the word and is is like a bridge that connects this sentence to the sentences before which are the verses we read last week let me condense and read them again verses 14 through 18 of chapter 4 it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Those verses are a description of the costly generosity of the Philippians. They had been exceptionally generous with Paul. Let me read you a text from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which is probably referring to the Philippians. And it gives context to their kindness. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Philippi was one of those churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their. This is quite a sentence. Their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I think that's a description of the Philippians specifically. And it's consistent with what Paul just said about them in verses 14 through 18. These were people, the Philippians, who wanted to relieve suffering. They wanted to relieve suffering in Jerusalem. They wanted to relieve the suffering of Paul as he is in prison. And they therefore gave, what did Paul say? Beyond their means. Well, what happens if you give beyond your means? You run out of means. If, if you give beyond your means, you run out of means. The Philippians may have been so generous with Paul that they've impoverished themselves. Which means they have worked so hard to supply someone else's needs that they may now need their own needs supplied. That's how generous they've been. So what is the connection between the verses before and verse 19 connected by this bridge word and? The connection is this. You, Paul is saying, have supplied my needs. God will supply yours. That's the connection. You have been so generous and have supplied all my needs. God will supply all of your needs. This is massive encouragement for a Christian. This is big encouragement. I want us to make sure we understand what this verse is saying. Let's read it slowly. Paying attention to each word. Verse 19. My God. That's the source. That's the fountainhead. Will supply. The word supply here is the same word Paul used earlier in the chapter. In 4 verse 18, when Paul said, I have received full payment from you and more. I am well supplied. It means made full. It means finished. It means filled up. My God will supply every in need of yours. What will be filled? What will be supplied? Every need 
of yours. The word need here means a necessary thing. It means something you lack. It is also the same word used earlier in the chapter in 4 verse 16 when Paul said, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It's also in chapter 2, verse 25, which says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and your messenger and minister to my need. Put those explanations together and this verse means exactly what it sounds like. God will supply every need of yours. There is not a need that you have that will go unmet. God will meet every single need. That's an exhaustive declaration that Paul makes. Every need. So let's think about that for a minute. What were the Philippians needs? If this verse is true for you as a Christian, and it is, what are your needs? Do you know? Do I know? I'm not sure I know what your needs are. I'm not sure I know what my needs are. If a child's misunderstanding of his own needs before his parents is any indication of our own misunderstanding of our needs before God, then we may not know for certain what our needs are. Daddy, I need that dress. Daddy, I need ice cream. I was out late with my 11-year-old son, Jackson, Friday night. It was 11 p.m. And we had just finished, he had just finished jumping on trampolines for two hours while glowing in the dark and drinking a massive Slurpee. And on the way to the car, he looks at me wild-eyed and says these words, I need French fries. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you need that. Like, what happens if you don't get it? I, I need a new job. I need more money. I need a husband. I need a wife. Have, have you ever thought you needed something, had it withheld, and later thanked God for withholding it? But who knows what you need? God knows what you need. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, and when you pray, Jesus said, when you pray, 
Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Why not? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. What a thing to hear Jesus say. When you go to pray and you've, you've, got your, you've got your needs in mind, remember what Jesus said before you open your mouth. God knows not. He doesn't say God knows what you're going to say. That's different. God knows what you're going to ask for. God knows what you think your needs are. Certainly God knows all that. But this is bigger and more important. He actually knows what your real true needs are before you ask, before you even think of it, before you even realize it. He knows what your needs are. And here we're being told, and not only does he know every need, he will supply every need. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows your failures. He knows your fears. He knows your hurts. He knows your hopes. According to Psalm 139, he knows your thoughts and your plans and your words before you even say them. And he knows what must yet be supplied and he will supply it. Get that and you'll be encouraged. Get that and you'll be encouraged to love God. And to love others. You will be freed to live the way that Paul has called you to live. You'll be freed up to live the way Paul has called you to live in this letter to the Philippians. Our self-preserving tendency. Is to withhold love. Because of our fear that we will lose something we need. We will impoverish ourselves physically or emotionally or spiritually. And there is a fear that if we empty ourselves, we will be left empty. Some of you sadly. Have been taught. Or you have learned That if you don't take care of yourself, no one will. If you don't look out for yourself, no one will. As if God didn't exist. Or have interest in you. But the truth is. The encouraging truth. Is that God will supply every need of yours. Not can, not may, but will supply every need of yours. Not he's considering it. He's thinking about it. If you're good enough, maybe no. My God, Paul says with confidence, will supply every need of yours. If you believe that, if you know that, what happens? You're encouraged. 
You're given the courage you need and the confidence you need to forsake anything and everything but God and his will. And now what does the second part of verse 19 say? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God has a lot of needs to supply. So he better be rich. He better be loaded. He is. His riches in glory. God has riches. He has wealth. He has abundance. Where? In glory. The Greek word for glory is doxa. And it refers here to the intrinsic splendor of God. The intrinsic splendor of God. The superlative beauty of God. The godness of God. The radiating sum total of who God is. I barely know what I'm saying when I say that. This is, it's that, it's that big. This is the glory of God and that is the storehouse from which God supplies the needs of his children. There's more here, but let that sink in. The glory of God, the radiating sum total of who God is, is the storehouse from which God supplies the needs of his children. But there is one more important thing to see here. It is this phrase, according to. Now, according to is different than out of. Think about this with me. Paul does not say, does he? Paul does not say, my God will supply every need of yours out of his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. No, Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying more than out of. Paul is saying more than God will meet all your needs and he will meet those needs from his riches in glory. He is saying that, but he's saying much more than God will supply all your needs from his riches in glory. Paul is saying God will meet all your needs. Here's what according to means in proportion to his riches in glory. Not out of, not from, in proportion to. Let me put it this way. Pretend you have a monetary need. For some of you, that's not hard. Pretend you have a monetary need and imagine a billionaire has agreed to meet your needs. Do you hear the difference 
between that billionaire saying, I'm going to meet your needs out of my riches and I'm going to meet your need in proportion to my riches. That's a big difference. Listen to Ralph Martin, the commentator. We may notice that the measure of God's provision as expressed in the preposition according to makes it clear that the rewarding will not be merely from his wealth, but also in a manner that befits his wealth on a scale worthy of his wealth. Who can estimate the range and depth of this richness? Every conceivable human need is more than adequately supplied from such a source. Here's what this is saying. At the end of the day, God does not barely meet needs. God does not barely meet needs. He, get this in your head, He lavishly meets needs. He's not a miser. Oh God, don't be a miser, Christian. Don't be misers. Don't be misers with one another. Don't be misers with your kids. Don't be misers with your parents. Don't be misers with your friends. I know you want to get a good deal on that, but stop it. As you are able... What is our model? God does not barely meet our needs. He lavishly meets his needs. He is a prodigal God giving extravagantly to his children, not just out of his riches, but according to his riches. And so Paul says things like this. And he says things like Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So he meets your needs abundantly according to his riches. That's the encouragement. Let's move on to the purpose. In verse 20, there is a purpose. This is the last thing Paul writes, but for a final greeting and benediction. The real substance of his letter ends right here, as made clear by the closing word, amen, which means let it be so. Everything Paul has called the Philippians to do. Think about this letter that we've read together. Everything that Paul has called the Philippians to do, everything that Paul has called us to do is is bottom lined in this purpose right here. Here's the bottom line purpose here. This is the sum total of every imperative. This is the aim and ultimate purpose of everything we do as Christians. Here it is. Verse 20 to our God and father be glory forever And ever. Amen. The word glory is here again. It was in the verse before. But it's used differently. In verse 19, the word referred to the intrinsic glory of God. But this refers to ascribed glory to God. We do not give God the glory of verse 19. We're not the ones that make God rich in glory. That's who he is. 
We do not give God the glory of verse 19, but we give God the glory of verse 20. This is the last thing Paul says, and he says it last because it is the aim of everything Paul has called the Philippians and us to do. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul has called us to do that. And be of the same mind and count others more significant than yourselves and look to the interests of others and work out your salvation with fear and trembling and do all things without grumbling and stand firm to the glory of God the Father forever and ever. We've got to get this right. Christian, why do you do what you do? What is the purpose behind why you do what you do? Why are you following these instructions? Why are you trying to live the way God's Word calls you to live? Your aim must be, your purpose must be that you do all those things for the glory of God. Not your glory, not your praise, not your reputation, not more pats on your back, not more advancement for you, not for your glory, but for God's glory. You not doing those things to earn anything from God, to deserve anything from God, to make sure you end up in heaven. These are all wrong purposes. A Christian lives this way. We follow God's word. Out of gratitude for what God has done to give him the praise, to give him the glory. That is your ultimate purpose in life. To glorify God. To bring glory to God forever. The Westminster Catechism asks in its first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer rightly is to glorify God. And enjoy Him forever. We live to reflect God. We live. What does it mean to glorify God? We live to make God look as glorious as He is. That's what I'm here for. That's why I'm standing here. That's what I'm going to be doing when I sit down. That's what I need to be doing at home. That's what I need to be doing tonight. That's what I need to be doing in my car. That's what I need to be doing at work. That's what I need to be doing when I'm doing the dishes, when I'm cleaning the backyard. That's what I need to be doing. This needs to be for the glory of God. I need to do this in such a way that it makes God look good. That it makes God look as glorious as He is. It was one of the slogans of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria, which means the glory of God alone. We live to Matthew 5.16. Let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Most people don't live like that. My tendency is not to live like that. My tendency is to let my light shine before men so that others will see my good works and give me glory. Say, nice job, Eric. What a pastor. 
Honey, you're such a good husband. Dad, what a wonderful father you are. You're such a good neighbor. You're such a good friend. What a blessing you are. I'm so thankful for you. And I like it. I like it too much. If I'm not careful, I'm doing what I'm doing for that. That's wrong. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your father who is in heaven. We live, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, to whether we eat or drink, whatever we're doing, to do it all for the glory of God. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for God. Psalm 115, 1 says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I can't believe I'm going to do this in one sense, but let me quote from Victoria Osteen. We've got to be careful because this this kind of thinking, I'll read this quote, is is prevalent. And without being snarky and mean, we just need to call it what it is and call it out and help one another and warn one another. And if we have opportunity to warn her. Here's what she said. If you wanted to get sick to your stomach, you can find it on YouTube. She said. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, You're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. And then you hear the crowd and her husband say. Amen. Now, let me read to you Psalm 115 one again, because one of them's lying. One of them's got it wrong. Not to us. O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. It's as if she read that verse that morning and decided to say the opposite. Paul ends the substance of his letter with the purpose. All that we do is for the glory of God. And now briefly. Paul wraps up with a greeting and a benediction in verses 21 through 22. There's there's a greeting. This was a typical thing for Paul to do at the end of his letters. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And then Paul says this. Especially those of Caesar's household. Paul said back in chapter one, verses 12 through 14, he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's in prison in Rome. 
He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You might ask, they might have asked, how far? You're in prison and the gospel's advancing. That's, that's amazing. I don't see how that's possible. How far is the gospel advancing? And Paul answers here. The gospel had advanced all the way into Nero's household. Into the Caesar's household. So that there are believers in Caesar's household who now send greetings to the believers in Philippi, which is astonishing. And finally, in verse 23, there's a a benediction. Paul ends his letter the way he began his letter. With an expression of his desire that the grace of Jesus Christ would be poured out on the Philippians in chapter one, verse two, he said, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he says at the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's a benediction. A benediction is a formal prayer for blessing over a people. We end every service here, as you know, with a benediction. So what is the blessing that Paul prays for here? It's grace. As he wraps up his letter, what is the the blessing that he's praying for? Over these people. Grace. Deep. Grace. Grace. That would, what did he say? Be with your spirit. Not just a a superficial experience of God's grace. The image is that God's grace would be poured over you. That his grace would sink deeply into your spirit. Into your soul. That God's grace would be with you on that deep level. So in conclusion, in conclusion to this sermon and in conclusion of this series, I would pray the same thing for us. That the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with your spirit, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with my spirit. I don't think there's anything more important, more significant, more crucial than that. For those of you who are not in Christ, who are here today, you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not in Christ. I would pray for grace this morning. I would pray for grace, the undeserved, what grace is, undeserved blessing, the undeserved blessing of God that he would give you this morning grace to see. To see your sin and to see your savior. That he would give you grace even now to believe. That he would give you Grace to 
trust. That he would give you grace to put your faith in Christ and to repent. To turn away from your sin and your self-reliance. For those of you who aren't Christians, you may at times feel like many of us who are Christians felt at one point in our lives. And I don't think God's grace is enough. I don't think it covers what I've done. I don't think it covers what I've said. I, I don't think that I've lived in a way that is worthy of that or deserving of that. And of course, you're right. But you may in the past or even today be tempted to think that this grace is not able to reach you. Let me quote Charles Spurgeon. This is what he said to his congregation of thousands one Sunday morning. Suppose that God saved men on account of their merits. Where would you drunkards be? Where would you swearers be? You who have been unclean and unchaste and you whose hearts have cursed God and who even now do not love him. Where would you be? But. When it is all of grace, then all your past life, however black and filthy it may be. Need not keep you from coming to Jesus. For those of you who are not in Christ, I pray for grace this morning. Grace to believe that. Grace to believe the gospel, to take hold of the gospel and to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. For those of you who are in Christ, you're here this morning and you you are a Christian and you are a Christian. Never forget by the grace of God. That's what got you here, got you in the door, it keeps you in the building. You're here by the grace of God, and I would just pray for more grace, <laughs> more grace this morning. You didn't just need grace to be saved. You need grace from beginning to end, from start to finish. You and I need the undeserved blessing of God that you would persevere, that you would endure, that you would face the trial grace, that you would enjoy God and live to his glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. For those of us who are here and have been saved. Help us to, to understand, to, to fathom what it is that you've done for us. We were dead and you gave us life. We were black and filthy. And you have cleaned us and made us white as snow. You have taken our sin from us. How far? As far as the east is from the west. 
You have given us your Holy Spirit as a promise and a seal. You continue to work in us to make us more like your son Jesus so that we would more and more live in a way that makes you look to the world as glorious as you are. And all of this, God, we we know is of grace. And we know that there is nothing in us to boast in. There's nothing in us to brag about. We do, God, but it's silly and stupid. We know that it is all by your grace. So humble us and help us to walk in that and desire and want more. Give us more, God, that we may live to your glory. For those who are here who who do not know you. For those who are here who think they know you. But don't. Would you open their eyes to face hard realities? And would you, God, give them the grace to see? Put a right spirit in them. Take off the blinders. Take that calloused, hard, rebellious heart and transplant it with a soft heart that loves you and loves others deeply. Revive them. Raise them from the spiritual dead so that they may walk in newness of life. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.